This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We're just wrapping up the first major in-person face-off between the House Committee on Financial Services, led by Maxine Waters, and six major crypto chiefs. On a day when crypto is seeing a rise, the gloves came off during an almost five-hour testimony meeting. Lawmakers seeking to hold crypto firms more accountable, worried about protections for consumers and investors. CEOs arguing too much regulation will stifle growth of potentially transformative digital assets. This past week provided a good illustration of the challenges associated with crypto and regulation. As the protests in Ottawa and at border crossings continue, cryptocurrency gradually moved into the spotlight as supporters used Bitcoin to help provide funding after crowdsourced funding platforms and banks stop funds transfers to organizers. Meanwhile, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner introduced a private member's bill titled the Encouraging the Growth of the Crypto Asset Sector Act, which would encourage the government to establish a regulatory framework that would support innovation in the space. In other words, there are both regulatory benefits and risks that are not easy to reconcile. Discussions around regulation are even more advanced in the United States where there have been multiple congressional hearings and proposals for legislative action around what is described as Web3. Sarah Rothgodet is the executive director of Fight for the Future, an organization that has been campaigning around internet issues for years, including on net neutrality, online privacy, and security. Fight for the Future was one of many leading digital civil liberties groups, that included Access Now, Article 19, EFF, and Global Voices, that recently came together to issue a public letter in support of alternatives to big tech. It calls on lawmakers to, and I'll quote, approach legislation related to Web3 technologies carefully and consider the impact that any potential regulation might have on communities of color, low-income people, and others who have faced discrimination from traditional and often predatory big tech companies, banks, and financial services. Rothgodet joins me on the podcast to talk about Web3, the regulatory initiatives, and the issues that are at stake. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad you could come on. As, as you know, and I'm sure many of listeners know, blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFTs, DeFi, stablecoins, DAOs. I mean, just sort of this litany of of crypto-related issues have all emerged as major areas of interest and topics of discussion over the last number of months. And as the public seemingly jumps on the bandwagon, we're seeing artists mint NFTs. Of course, a lot of people are buying and trading crypto. And DAOs have been getting involved in everything from trying to buy copies of the U.S. Constitution to even facilitating open access publications, the area has also quite clearly sparked no shortage of concern and controversy. There are a lot of people worried about fraud, about the environmental impact, and fears that the problems that exist with big tech today are simply going to be replicated yet again with these new technologies. Now, the umbrella term that's taken hold for all of this is Web3. Can you start us off, I guess, with your take on what that constitutes? And I suppose even for for that matter, what was Web1 and Web2? You know, I think with Web3, people are looking for a way to to just describe a lot of different technologies in one term, and, and that's hard to do. 
Um, Web3, I think, helps that specific term helps to put some of these new technologies in a chronological frame <laughs> to say that, that it has a place, you know, that we are in a place in terms of the evolution of, of technology in the web. Um, Wendy Hanamura from the Internet Archive, who, who helped to start the DWeb community, which was founded to connect the people, projects, and protocols, building a decentralized web. She, she describes the difference between Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3 fairly well. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give her credit, but, um, but you know, essentially uh, you know, share her perspective on it, which is that you know, Web 1.0, of course, or you know, Tim Berners-Lee invention called the World Wide Web started in 1991, and it allowed everyone to become a publisher. It's quite democratic in nature, and, and it was and is still you know, largely decentralized. And in those early days, a user would you know, create a self-hosted website. Maybe it would have hyperlink text, files that you could read, maybe download. And these were pages that were static pages. Some people call it the um, read-only web. Web 2.0 started around the year 2000, largely the web we use today. And we have the emergence of big platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and they allow people to interact with the content, to comment and share. So people call this sometimes the read and write web or the social web. And that's also meant that the large centralized platforms have control over the information we access, our privacy and, and our security. Similarly, some technologies like email or web servers, which you know, have the potential to be, to be decentralized, were then offered as centralized services, whether through Google or Amazon. And this was largely because no one wanted to run their own email or web servers, understandably. Um, but so with Web 2.0, we traded the control over our data and experience for interactivity on the social web and just ease of use with things like email. And then she says around 2010 is where she places it would be web start of Web 3.0. And that's the same time as the Bitcoin blockchain. The central innovation you know, is that these technologies are verifiable. You know, some say it's a trustless system because instead of trusting Facebook, you're trusting the data being on the blockchain and the blockchain verifies it. Um, Albert Wenger of the of Union Square Ventures has done a lot of good writing on this too. And I find it as a lay person, as a non-tech tech person, kind of helpful to wrap my head around it. And the way he describes it is that we have had permissionless publishing, but we have not had permissionless databases and that the central innovation is a protocol for maintaining consensus in, in, in a database. But I think ultimately the most important thing to keep in mind is that most people agree that, that however you want to try to define or explain Web 3.0, it's more than just blockchains. Jay Graber, who's now running the Blue Sky Project and who started as an activist and worked with Fight for the Future briefly, she defines it as a technology that has to be self-certifying. So by using cryptographic IDs for ID or um, data you know, with, with immutable hashes, so it can include and should include, you know, many other protocols, things like IPFS, Interplanetary File System, Hypercore, Secure Scuttlebutt. Many of these are run by nonprofits. There's also Mastodon. It's a decentralized social platform, kind of a distributed Twitter. It uses federated technology, so not blockchain. Um, Matrix, which we use at Fight for the Future as kind of a Slack alternative as a protocol. Um, that allows you, know, you to do secure messaging without a centralized owner. So there are many other examples, and I think that's one of the key 
key takeaways is we probably don't need to continue debating necessarily what is included, but just that the, to, to understand that it is more than just the blockchains, although they get a lot of the attention. Okay, they certainly do, but I think you've done a nice job of, of highlighting sort of the range of decentralized technologies that can fit within that broader framing. Both, I, I suppose, the, the emergence of some of these decentralized technologies, which raise questions about how regulable they might be, as well as some of the specifics around, I think, the what people do focus around the blockchain and stable coins and some of the other cryptocurrencies have, have quite clearly sparked a lot of discussion about regulatory intervention, particularly in the United States. So, so where are things at right now? Certainly, we see lots of congressional hearings taking place. Uh, is this sort of laying the foundation for the possibility that we're going to see senators or members of Congress begin to propose various legislative initiatives? Probably, yes. And there are some already that have been introduced. I mean, and there are there are is already regulatory of action that has, has taken place. So we first got engaged in, in this kind of issue area and campaigns uh, when FinCEN and the federal treasury proposed new rules that would dramatically increase warrantless surveillance of, of financial transactions, including cryptocurrencies. So along with Coin Center and others, we, we helped to facilitate more than 4,000 people submitting comments opposing these rules. Um, you know, they, 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 their stated intention is, you know, fighting financial crime, um, but they want, you know, more more surveillance. Um, arguably, you know, we believe more than they should necessarily have over over the cryptocurrency specifically. Um, and this push from the Treasury for this greater surveillance culminated in a couple of last minute provisions attached to the Biden administration's infrastructure bill. They were intended to be you know, pay-fors to fund the bill through tax collection on cryptocurrencies, which seems totally fine. But it was written really, they were written really hastily without a real clear understanding of how the technology works. For example, it, it expanded the definition of broker in a way that would kind of sweep up all the software developers working on blockchain projects, requiring them to report information on transactions on the blockchain that, that they don't even have access to. Um, or another provision would make failure to report on these transactions a felony. So we you know, sprung into action along with others, including EFF, to help facilitate a big, big backlash. And it was, it was big. I mean, you know, we just essentially put out a call tool on Twitter, but it went viral and, and over 40,000 calls into the Senate um, you know, over the course of just a few days, maybe a week. And a last minute amendment from Senator Wyden um, that ultimately failed, but laid the groundwork for how how this could be fixed in future legislation. So that infrastructure bill passed and became became law. These rules don't go into effect until I think it's 2023. But um, now Senator Wyden and, and Senator Loomis have introduced a bill that would kind of override most of the bad provisions in the infrastructure bill. There's a house house side bill too. Um, but you know it, it, it's hard to imagine it, it really going anywhere with this Congress, but we'll see. Um, and, and just, um, I think last week, a bill got introduced called the Virtual Currency Tax Fairness Act, which would exempt consumers from paying taxes on crypto payments less than $200. It's got bipartisan support and um, it's pretty important, I think, as far as the crypto ecosystem is concerned, because we haven't taken any position on it, but 
it would help create kind of a level playing field for the digital currencies, um, you know, treat them to be kind of more analogous with, with cash. But again, it's hard, it's hard to say if it's really, really going anywhere. So yeah, I think more hearings, not sure there'll be any, any real action in Congress, but, but we'll see. So a lot of hearings and certainly more and more attention to it. You know, I, I want to get to some of the advocacy and the letters that, uh, that that you helped pull together. But I guess just before I do that, as a Canadian, I almost feel compelled to ask, you know, how, how much acknowledgement is there that the kind of technologies that we're talking about operate quite clearly in a global environment? You know, from a Canadian perspective, Ethereum and Cosmos blockchains both have their origins in Canada. Vitalik Buterin is the founder of Ethereum, actually just uh, made the a Canadian top 50 power list uh, in recognition of, of that role. Uh, NFT, the NFT craze in many ways started at least in part through a Vancouver-based company, Dapper Labs. So, you know, that's just the Canadian example that there are probably examples. I know there are examples in, in other countries around the world. So this is a pretty is a global issue. Uh, to what extent is is the, the global nature of some of these questions acknowledged, at least as part of that regulatory discussion? I think it's a missing piece of the conversation that folks are having in the U.S. and, and just probably the global north more broadly, because, you know, obviously there's grifters and scams and it's pretty easy to spend all day dunking on crypto, but coins that hold payment value are, are playing a larger and larger role, you know, to facilitate movement of money across borders like remittances. There was a story in the last couple of days reported by Forbes um, citing, I think, a 900% increase in remittances via crypto in Latin America. So it is really playing, you know, a, a role, I think, globally in terms of, of, um, of moving money. Um, if you're thinking about regulation, Gosh, you know, typical American, but I'm not honestly sure what's happening happening in Canada. I know, you know, many countries are wrestling with how to regulate. You know, some are banning the use of cryptocurrencies altogether. Many of these countries, maybe not coincidentally, want to create a CBDC or a central bank digital currency because that ultimately will give them more control. And then just recently, also, I guess maybe in the last year, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. <laughs> uh, the acronym is an it's an internet intergovernmental organization with over 200 member countries. They issued some new guidance for financial surveillance on cryptocurrencies. It, it's pretty similar to what FinCEN is looking to do. Um, it's called a you know travel rule. Um, it's it's going to require um, or it recommends rather as a as a um, guidance that exchanges like Coinbase or others that that they KYC. Um, or know your customer, so they gather customer information on cryptocurrency transactions over $1,000. Um, now, I mean, a lot of cryptocurrency people will say that they can hold their cryptocurrencies in their own wallets outside of places like Coinbase, and these governments can't, you know, know what they're doing. But this becomes an issue when you're wanting to exchange or sell that crypto. <laughs> you call it like an on-ramp or an off-ramp to one of these exchanges. You have to go to a site like Coinbase. So companies like Coinbase. What will probably happen is companies like Coinbase or Kraken won't be able to accept coins from these types of wallets. We call them self-hosted wallets or unhosted wallets. And so we're going to have greater and greater centralization through the exchanges and, and less privacy. Um, and it may, may put some of the like truly decentralized exchanges like DEXs completely out of business. Um, so we'll see how many countries actually adopt these rules because it's just a guidance, but I think undoubtedly many will. Many of the groups that have been vocal uh, about their concerns with social media, search companies and the like, have begun to express similar concerns 
about Web3. So their concerns may be about some of the kinds of issues you've been highlighting, or more broadly, they're concerned, as, as we are talking about earlier, about issues around environmental impact and fraud and, and some of those kinds of concerns. But Fight for the Futures is part of a large group of digital rights NGOs. It includes Access Now, EFF, Global Voices, and many others that recently came together to publish a public letter that I think it's fair to say takes a more nuanced view, supporting the potential of Web3 to provide alternatives to big tech and warning against some of the, I guess, potential legislative overreach. You know, I want to get into the substance of the letter because I think you, it raises some really interesting issues that aren't as discussed as much. But but first, how did the how did the letter and, and, and these various groups come together? As I mentioned, we, we joined forces around the proposed FinCEN rules and then later with the infrastructure bill with um, organizations like EFF or Freedom of the Press Foundation. Um, you know, we also found ourselves aligned with folks like the Blockchain Association, and, and that, that's that been great because in these moments, they have been in the space for so long, they really understand the, the regulatory issues, but they also represent the industry. And we felt that there was a, a really important need to bring a human rights perspective. And, you know, more importantly, to try to together kind of lay down some broad principles that we felt lawmakers should be considering when regulating the space, as, as regulation will surely come and 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 may very well be be needed. Yeah. So you mentioned already an example of of how these technologies are used for uh, remittances and citing Latin America as an example. I thought it was notable that the letter begins right off the top by emphasizing the benefits of Web3 for marginalized and vulnerable groups. And I suspect that might be news to some. Can you discuss a little bit how these technologies are used by these groups, particularly as contrasted with other segments of society? Well, so in the U.S. here, one out of every four residents is either unbanked or underbanked. Um, you know, these overwhelmingly low-income, young, mostly Black and Latinx people face then huge costs in terms of, you know, high fees and time when they try to perform even the, the simplest of financial transactions like cashing a paycheck. So underbanked Americans are then forced to rely on predatory services that not only charge exorbitant fees, but also have a history of discriminating against these same communities. You know, if trends continue, the median black household in the US will have zero wealth by 2053. Early web three systems such as cryptocurrencies are, are already providing some solutions to, to financial exclusion around the world as we discussed with, with remittances. Um, and another, I think really, interesting um, stat is that there's a Harris Poll survey found that in the U.S. 30% of Black and 27% of Hispanic investors own cryptocurrencies compared with just 17% of white investors. So, you know, some of these systems are, are benefiting marginalized communities, and, and it's important for lawmakers to keep this in mind, you know, to seek input from human rights organizations, humanitarian organizations, racial justice organizations before making, you know, important decisions um, about regulation. Privacy is obviously a huge concern, certainly in the, in the current environment, in the centralized world. We all are focused, I think, on the on potential for misuse, the massive amount of data collection that exists in so-called Web two. The you know the the various groups as part of this letter suggest that a decentralized model can be privacy enhancing. You know how so? Yeah, I mean it's important to note that um that, you know public blockchain cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin are. They are radically transparent at the sort of protocol level. The transactions are all viewable and immutable to everyone forever on the blockchain ledger, so they can't be changed. Um, 
So they're not anonymous, but they're like pseudo anonymous, like, like email addresses. Um, and that's why we're concerned with things like fin the FinCEN and FATF rules. If you know information about who is sending a cryptocurrency in the blockchain, then you also have a lot of information about any other transactions that person has made and that person's financial history. And that, and that can reveal a lot as we know. Um, so for, for these reasons, some developers have endeavored to create cryptocurrencies that implement privacy techniques at the protocol level. Um, these are you know, privacy preserving cryptocurrencies or privacy coins, some people refer to them, and, and they're separate from, uh, from Bitcoin. They're you know, peer to peer blockchain based cryptocurrencies, but they operate in kind of special ways to conceal senders, recipients or amounts or some combination thereof from, from third parties. So um, one of the oldest, I think that, that folks may have heard of is called Zcash, but there's also Monero and others. So um, there you know, are really interesting things I think happening with you know within the sort of privacy community, um, the you know the cryptocurrency community that's focused on privacy. There's there's definitely a lot of potential there, um, you know. But we we um, you know also just think that as far as the again coming back to regulation or um, anything in the future in terms of decentralized payment systems um, like cryptocurrencies that that there's the there it's analogous with cash really. Um, and so they should enjoy as much privacy as users of cash in, in, in the analog world. Um, but there's potential for, you know, for even more. We jumped into payments with respect to privacy, and, and that makes sense. There's a, yes. there's a tendency, I think, really to, to look at many of these issues through the prism of payment systems, of course. The opportunity for the remittances, as, as you just noted, the, the possibility of, of trying to imbuing some of uh, these payment systems with higher levels of privacy than we might find otherwise. Uh, but the, the letter suggests that you know, blockchain technologies is about more than just payments. Uh, what are some of the kinds of examples that you were thinking about? And, and how does looking at these issues from a regulatory perspective, largely through the prism of payments, potentially impact the emergence of some of these other kinds of use cases? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously talking a lot about the, the you know, the um, cryptocurrencies that are that have payment value, because, you know, I, I see it as really, the, it's the most successful experiment thus far in terms of, of Web3. But, you know, we focus on that because it is indeed an experiment and that, you know, that we think the, pro, you know, the promising uses have little to do with, with financial transactions. Um, and because of this, you know, coming back to the letter again, this diversity, you know, so-called like digital assets can't necessarily be regulated as a monolith. Um, for example, blockchain networks, some, some provide file storage or computation or validation, um, similar to, to other, you know, more familiar types of software like, like spreadsheets or databases. And, and so I think if, if regulators are to think of, of you know, these issues primarily through this financial prism, as you said, that will be a problem. <laughs> we can't we can't exclusively think about it through the sort of financial regulation lens. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a good point. I mean, you think of services like Helium trying to create alternatives mm -hmm. in terms of internet access, and as you mentioned, file sh uh, file storage. I mean, there's just a, a lot of these different kinds of technologies that are are nascent at this stage, but could be interesting to see how some of them emerge. You know. People, I think, more broadly are familiar, of course, with things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. There are now thousands, it seems like, of these various cryptocurrencies. The letter warns against criminalizing or overburdening the creation or exchange of some of these digital tokens. 
I think the counter might well be that there's a lot of concern around fraud and the like that can arise as part of some of these tokens as well. What are some of your concerns about the, the prospect of over-regulating in this space? You know, how do, how do you feel you strike the balance when it comes to some of these issues? Digital tokens are thus far, you know, like I said, the most successful experiment for for every project built on blockchain, whether it's a whether it's one of these file storage services like Filecoin or a social media app um, to function properly. You know, these, these tokens play a critical role. Um, they've become synonymous with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's early. And so we think that's far too narrow an understanding of their, of their potential. Um, you know, unlike Bitcoin, which is only a particular token created by one blockchain network, many tokens don't represent money or a share of ownership at all. Um, they might be used to activate services provided by the platform that created them. They might be a type of digital coupon that gives the holder a discount when buying services for the platform. This, it could be analogous to like a grocery co-op offering discounts for members who help help stock the shelves. Certainly not an activity we would think to, to outlaw. Um, you know, further regulations, further, excuse me, regulations that were created for cash transactions prior to the existence of the internet can't really be workably applied to tokens that represent the rights to ownership of a work of art, like a, like a song. Those are some some good examples in terms of how that can play out. You know, for me, I think the most notable aspect of, of that letter was, you know, the emphasis on asking political political leaders to safeguard justice, freedom of expression, and civil liberties, which, you know, I recognize many of the groups are directly involved, of course, in, in exactly those issues. But some looking from the outside might wonder, what does this have to do with, with Web3? What does this have to do with the issues that we're talking about? What are some of the risks that you see when it comes to justice, expression, and, and basic civil liberties around this space? Yeah, we, you know, we really think lawmakers have to just ensure that the, the same you know, constitutional civil rights and human rights protections that we have in the analog world are preserved in, in cyberspace. Um, you know, legislation should explicitly affirm that the simple act of writing code is, is protected speech. Many you know, projects in this space were developed by networks of volunteers, as were other valuable innovations in the past, like you know, Linux and, and Firefox. Um, legislation you know, must not subject the, subject the activities of volunteer creators and developers to the fear of prosecution. Um, that has a very, very chilling effect. And you know, that's why one of the uh, provisions that was added to the infrastructure bill um, just you know, this past summer was, was so problematic. Let's conclude with this. It, 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 all this still feels pretty early, both in the development of some of these technologies, the use cases as we've been talking about, and some of the regulatory responses. You know, how do you see this playing out in, in the months ahead? Well, we're waiting for the, the Treasury and FinCEN to, to put out their final guidance that hasn't happened yet. Um, so we'll, we'll see, you know, I think some folks like Coin Center and others expect that there'll be some improvements from their first, first draft, but um, that's ongoing. Um, there will likely be more hearings, of course, but it's, it's hard to imagine a whole lot happening in Congress. Um, you know, we're focused on trying to bring the messages from the recent, the principles from the recent letter that we helped to organize on, on behalf of the organizations that signed it directly to lawmakers and to their, and to their staff um, to, to, to make sure they're sort of taking into account this important perspective. There's a, a big case happening between Ripple and the SEC. And at some point, <laughs> there'll be some answers coming out of that that will help inform how projects can 
can get started and operate legally. The, I think these projects really just want to know what are the rules <laughs> um, as they move forward. Uh, just today, I was seeing in the Wall Street Journal the Commodity Future Commodity Futures Trading Commission (CFTC). Um, they they want Congress to give them the authority to regulate. They think it should happen there instead of at the SEC. So there's gonna, <laughs> there's continue to be a lot of questions around you know how not only how should it be regulated, but who should have the the authority to to you know to do the regulation. Um, in addition to Congress, of course. So um, yeah, like you said, it is really it is really early, I think, in terms of the regulatory process, but absolutely in terms of of Web three development. So it's you know it's not. A, <laughs> I think our regulators have a difficult job ahead of them, really, um, how to you know safeguard um, the, the the potential for some of these technologies to provide some real alternatives to web 2.0 or to big big tech um, while you know protecting consumers and investors and yes I think a lot of the regulatory conversation is happening through this financial prism but I think that especially members of Congress need to understand that there is a, an important human rights perspective there's a um, you know an important climate perspective to take into account you think it's important that we engage that other human rights organizations engage that climate justice organizations engage like we need to just the same way we we did with web 2.0 and, and and especially looking back and and thinking about how we could have averted some of the problems that we have now we need to we need to engage here with web 3.0 well said i mean these these issues as i say are, are early stage and the complexity of not just the how, as you say, but the who, and the both the opportunities, but also quite clearly some of the risks and the, the benefit of hindsight of seeing some of the mistakes that were made with some of the, the previous iterations and a desire to avoid some of those all suggests that this is an issue that's going to continue to play out in the coming months and, and be exceptionally important, I think, for so many. You know, thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast and helping me unpack uh, many of these issues and where we stand today. Yeah, thank you so much for, for inviting me on. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.